Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. It's great to be with you this morning and to contribute to this, uh, this series this summer, Selah, the, the rest. Um, and it's wonderful to have uh, younger people in with us this morning. Uh, children, thank you for being here. Uh, it's probably more one-sided of us old folks being, you know, glad to see you here. You might be going, listen, man, get this thing over. I got stuff to do. So I will, I will try to not be too long, but it's, my, my sense is I'm going to be longer than what you would prefer. But actually, it's, it's really important for us to, right now, to be able to see children. We're going to look at Psalm 42, and if I'm being completely honest, it's Psalm 42 and 43, because they really are both Psalm 42. The, the refrain continues through them. And what we're going to do this morning is talk a bit more about the front end of Psalm 42. Uh, we're going to read through both Psalm 42 and 43 as we go, but we're going to emphasize the front end of Psalm 42 and raise three questions that the psalmist raises for us and that are really the response is the continued refrain of hope in God. Uh, but I, I mentioned children at the start here because children and hope are linked. Uh, you know, when we think of children, I don't know how much you think about children, childhood, uh, for many of you here, you have constant, ongoing thoughts about your children, right? Your concern for them, your hoping for them, uh, you want to help them. Maybe there's struggles with your children between you and your relationships, uh, right? So, you know, you may have very specific children in mind, and you might not think of children generally too much, but you certainly think of your children specifically. For many of us, we're going to look back and think on childhood. Right? Our, our childhood, the memories uh, that are, are hardwired into us in those early stages of life, things that we cannot forget. We might not always interpret them well, you know, from the years removed, but they're ingrained in us. We go back to our childhood. We think of it often. For me, in, in some of my academic studies, I've thought more about the concept of childhood. You're going, oh, okay, here's the boring part, right? Uh, but like, what, what is a child? What does it mean to be a child? And, and one of the things I came across in that was some of uh, Stanley Hauerwas's teaching that childhood and children are a sign of hope. And that we need to recognize children as this symbol of hope before us. There's, there's many dystopian stories that we can read. One, I, I read uh, P.D. James's Children of Men. Uh, you may have seen the film. The idea there is that fertility has ended in the world, and it's a hopeless, it's a dystopian world because there are no more children, and there's this one, you know, you know who the last child born in the world was, uh, and I won't give away too much of the story, but, but the question of fertility is raised again, and it, it has uh, implications for what's happening in the world that P.D. James is, is imagining. But when you think about dystopian stories, very characteristic of them is either a lack of children or children under threat, right? And that is a part of how it portrays. It's, it's almost necessary, if you're going to paint a dystopian future, that it lacks children or that they're under threat, right? That's a part of it. Because children 
are this symbol of hope. And the way that we treat children as a society says something about us. It says something about the way we think of hope. And we need to recognize that children as this symbol of hope, it's a symbol that despite everything that goes on in our world, and we're, we're more and more confronted, more and more aware of all that's going on in our world, children are a sign that life is worth living. Right? They represent that to us. Now often uh, with, a, with a Sunday message or with a talk, you start, uh, the speaker will start with a light illustration. I'm going to start a bit heavy uh, this morning uh, because we're looking at, at Psalm uh, 42 and Psalm 42 to me is a prayer for the heart sick. And uh, there's a, a Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 12, says hope deferred makes the heart sick or makes the heart weak. And I was trying to think of how to understand this. And, and for me, it's, it's a dark moment that, that brings this to light. And it's because children are this symbol of hope. I mean, just the, you know, when you, you get married and you're thinking of having children, just the idea of children brings light, brings joy. And Tanya and I, uh, we, we have four children. Uh, but between Sophia, uh, Sydney and Sophia, uh, we lost our pregnancy. And, uh, and Tanya miscarried. And I remember vividly walking into our home and Tanya telling me that uh, she was having trouble, that there was spotting. And, and all I could, the whole world closed on me. And I said, no, no this cannot happen right? I was met with hopelessness. And we lost that pregnancy. And, and that was hard. Uh, it was hard for Tanya. It was hard for me. It was hard as a couple. It was hard to walk through it with uh, Cassie and Carter and Sydney. Um, but it, 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 you know, emphasized to me the hopefulness that we had and the despair that we felt in that loss. Losing that pregnancy was heart-sickening. It was heart-weakening. It, it challenged hope for us. Well, Psalm 42 and 43 provide Christians, provide God's people with a language of godly resilience in the face of uncertainty, of opposition, and of despair. And this message is going to explore the role of, those, of this psalm, of, well, these psalms, 42 and 43, and how they might help us in our formation as God's children and as his people. We're going to proceed this way. I'm, I'm going to read the first few verses. I'm not going to read through the whole psalm and Psalm 43 at the beginning here. I would like to, but I feel like time's not on my side with that. Uh, so let me read the first few verses. Starting in verse 1. And, and some of these verses may be very familiar, especially t as you think of different passages uh, of Scripture that we sing often. There's a few a few clauses, a few pieces in here that we sing frequently, and, and especially, uh, you know, if you went to camps in the 1980s or 90s, you know, as the deer pants for the water, this will be very familiar. Uh, but as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Now, the psalmist here, 
is someone who, and, and this will become more evident as we go through the psalm, the psalmist is, is isolated from temple worship. It's isolated from the praise of the people of God. And uh, it may be a refugee, maybe in exile, and perhaps the psalm suggests exile because of some of the taunting being received. But this is, you know, this is the situation. The psalmist is, is isolated from temple worship, and so it brings out this cry, right? As the deer longs, so I long after you. And it raises a bit of a question for us. It tells us something about being human, about what it means to be human. Here again, maybe this is a question you don't think about a lot. Uh, you might not think about kind of the philosophical side of childhood. Maybe you don't spend a lot of time thinking about what it means to be human. But if, if you were going to just throw a word or, or a sentence, anybody from the top of your head, how would you describe what it means to be human if someone asked you? Anyone? Yeah. Say that one more time. Breathe, think. I think you said create things, right? Having, you said something about organs, body, right? These are important parts to be human, right? And that embodiment part, that matters, right? We are embodied beings. Anyone else? Oh, sorry. To worship God. Have you been, did you read my sermon before? Did you hack my computer? Because there's a Rogers thing, I don't know. Right, but this is, it's important for us to think about these things. And these are important elements. You might not have read my sermon, you might be reading some of the church fathers or something. No, not at school? Okay. Um, One of the key elements here that we can learn about being human from what the psalmist is writing, uh, and we may think Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, right? That's really kind of being, you know, brains on a stick. Right? And, and that's, there's more to being human than just thinking, than just being rational. Uh, and we might say, well, yeah, belief. Believing doesn't quite get us there either. And, and Psalm 42 doesn't lead us just to believing. We're believing people, right? It's being lovers, worshipers, right? Fundamental to being human is loving. And, and we see this with the psalmist, right? He's yearning for God. He longs for God. But it's not just because he's isolated. It's because that's what it is to be human. Uh, So here's what uh, Augustine, at the beginning of his confessions, right at the very beginning, in the first paragraph, he says, You stir humanity to take pleasure in praising you, God, because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Right? Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in God because we are made for God. C.S. Lewis puts this in more technical, kind of mechanical terms. He writes in Mere Christianity, God made us, invented us as a man invents a car, an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and I would not run properly, and it would, sorry, not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, the the drink, the water that was meant to quench our spirits. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace 
apart from himself because it is not there. So for both Augustine and later C.S. Lewis, who's reading Augustine, right, God has made us for himself. We are restless when we seek happiness, fulfillment, when we desire after things that are not God. Because those things don't deliver. Not fully. They don't erase our restlessness. Because we're made for God. Uh, we read if, uh, in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? Right? His tears have been his food. What's the psalmist saying here? I yearn, I thirst after God, and the only thing I have to quench me is my thirst after God. Right? This is the only sustenance I have. Uh, and, he's, and, and he's alienated, and in his alienation, he's taunted by this question, where is God? Where is God? That may be a question coming to him from the outside. It may be a question coming from the inside. He's thirsting. Where is God? Where is this satisfaction, the only satisfaction? But it's interesting, right? And this is where, where the psalmist uh, moves us from our individualistic mindset where we want to say, hey, we come to worship. You know, and, and even uh, when in our prayer time, and I said, well, let's confess. Let's confess our love to God. Let's confess our sins before God, the sins he knows. Let's confess our rebellion to God. But that's not just between me and God because I don't exist just as this isolated individual. And the psalmist wasn't just talking. His yearning for God was a yearning to be among the people praising God. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, Yet you, God, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And we see in verse 4, These things I remember, the psalmist writes, as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. See, his story isn't just about his own personal, spiritual life that, that can be kept to the inner being. As Christians, we just, that option's not open to us. It's not intelligible as you read the New Testament. Why? Because we identify with the death and resurrection of Christ, and we identify with one another in the death and resurrection of Christ. We are clothed in Christ, but we are our oneness is in Christ. And so as the psalmist directs and says, it's I yearn to be among the people of God, praising God, it, it's important. Right? We're made for God. We're made to run on God. We're made to gather as his children and to praise him and to speak to his kingship together. So, a vital part of being human is this need for belonging. I know there's this great theological treatise, kind of a documentary called Toy Story 2. And uh, in the Toy Story, uh, you know, universe and world, uh, it seems like you constantly have this separation from community, this threat. And in Toy Story 2, it's, it's Woody gets separated. And I'm not going to go too deeply into the story because I simply will mess some of it up. But, but Woody is separated, he's, he's kind of held hostage, he's got some, uh, you know, they seem like friends at first, and then the leader of that group, Stinky Pete, I got that right, didn't I? Stinky Pete, yeah. Stinky Pete is, you know, holding him there, but he wants to get back to his community. 
right? He's, for him, he's made for Andy's room, right? That's where he's sold. He's made to be among Andy's toys. Uh, now, we can't carry that too far, so let's, let's switch back to someone else. Uh, this is how Lactantius puts this, and uh, you, won't, you won't see it on the slide, but he talks about uh, the reason that humanity is the proper concern of justice and the service of God is because it includes the principle of life and community. Lactantius is, you, you, he's not a blogger, uh, he's one of the uh, early church fathers, kind of prior to the creeds, I think he's around the second or third century. But he says this, and I think we can relate. For God, in denying them wisdom, in denying human beings, sorry, in denying animals wisdom, equipped other animals with better natural defenses against attack and danger, right? Uh, human beings didn't get wings, claws. Uh, we didn't get, you know, powerful limbs the way that some of these animals have. Rather, human beings God created naked and vulnerable, that he might teach them wisdom instead, and gave them besides all else this deep sense of obligation to protect love, and cherish one another to assist against every danger, right? I think Lactantius, you know, is speaking to something that you see in Toy Story 2, this need for community, this need to belong. And it's, it's an important need. It's vital to life. We weren't made to be off on our own. Uh, now, we can only, you know, take this so far, this, this uh, and I actually think Lactantius in this small section doesn't quite get us to where we need to go, because the psalmist is saying, not just I need to be with my people, right, that's not his claim, I need to be with God's people, I need to be with the people proclaiming God's name, worshiping God, I need to be in the praise of God. 1 John 4 turns this to love. No one has ever seen God. This is verse 12 in 1 John 4. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. Right? Now, now why are we praising God? Why are we in, uh, you know, in this relationship of love as the people of God? Well, in the Psalms, they're praising God. Why? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Yahweh delivered Israel from Egypt. He is the God who saves, the mighty power of salvation. And we know that too, because in the New Testament, we know God. He's revealed to us and, and revealed to us in the New Testament, but we also see him acting in the Old Testament as Father, Son, and Spirit, who raised Israel's Jesus from the dead. That's the God we praise. The God who raises Israel's Jesus from the dead. And he shapes his people. And to, for the next part to be intelligible as I raise these questions, I, I want to say he shapes us in this way. So we've, we've talked about childhood. We've talked about being human. A fundamental piece that the New Testament reveals to us of being Christian is to be a people of faith, love, and hope. This is Paul's uh, you know, kind of tripartite ethic right? It is we live in faith, love, and hope. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, uh, right? In 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, 1 Corinthians 12, you have this great, you know, treatise on spiritual gifts, and, and then Paul shifts and says, I want to tell you the most excellent way, and then he describes love. Uh, but in that, he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Later, when he's writing to the Thessalonian church, 
He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oliver O'Donovan, in, in his book, Self, World, and Time, he says, the outline of the Christian life is sufficiently well sketched. Faith in Christ is the foundation of Christian experience. Love is its social embodiment. Hope, its ground of endurance. Faith roots us. We are grounded in faith. And it establishes us in this world, which is our moral field. It's our field of action. And the field of action is summed up in one word, love. Right? But it's God's word, right? Love is, is his word. Love flows from God. God instructs us in love. And we desperately need instruction in love because we are lovers. We are, like the psalmist says, those who long, right? Uh, as the deer pants for water, so we long after God. The problem is our loves are corrupted through sin. Our loves, the objects of our loves are misplaced. We, we get off of the kingdom of God and we place our loves in other places. Maybe this morning as, as you prayed confession, right, you were confessing that. I have to regularly confess that. I have to regularly ask God, align my love, right? Um, so we are called to love and we are conditioned by hope. The hope of the kingdom pulls us forward through this life. We are drawn through it. It's the condition of what it is to be God's people. We live in hope. And so when, when we are faced with the question we see in verse 3, where is your God? And this comes up a few times in the passage in, in, uh, that we're looking at, uh, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Where is your God? It raises the question, has uncertainty triumphed over faith, hope, and love? Has doubt, uncertainty, have the failures of churches and of Christians raised questions for you that triumph over faith, hope, and love? This may be external. You, you may have a struggle in your faith because of the places that you are going, at your workplace. It may be hard. Uh, it may be hard in your friendships, in your neighborhood, to, to be a person of faith, hope, and love, to let faith, hope, and love shine through you. But this is what we're called to. It may be internal. Uh, you, you may have uh, heard of this movement of deconstructing the faith, right? Uh, there's a book just came out, Jesus and John Wayne. I felt I had to read it because phonetically, my name is John Wayne, so... Uh, so I felt obligated. Uh, but it's, it's a book looking at what Christian faith in America has looked like, how wedded it has been to politics and to kind of a masculine domination. And it's leading people to go, well, so what do I do? And, and deconstructing is, well, I'm going to pull these things apart piece by piece to make sense of it and build it back up. Now, there's major questions that raises. The question isn't, the issue isn't you're never allowed to ask a question about your faith or never allowed to doubt but we also rest ourselves in God. And we need to put doubt in its proper place. And, and here's where the psalmist keeps landing, right? He's, he's faced with questions. He's got his longing. He longs for God. But verse 10 begins this, or sorry, verse 5 begins this constant refrain in Psalm 42 and 43. And it's this answer to the question, have 
have uh, doubts, has uncertainty, triumphed over faith, hope, and love. And in verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. The theme, one of the themes running through all of the Psalms is run to God, take refuge in him. He is your strong tower. He is your rock. And so when we face doubt and uncertainty, when we face it because of questions asked of us or to us, when we face it because it's questions bubbling up within us, it's okay to face questions. But again, where do we have to turn? Our hope is in God. We're conditioned for this. We may hit a lot of bumps in the road, or potholes would be the vernacular here in Montreal, right? We may hit a lot of potholes and bumps in the road, but we're drawn forward by our hope in God. And, and here's the secret that we don't often think through in, in our secularized world. We often think, well, yeah, faith, there's a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. But guess what? Doubt is haunted by faith as well. The person doubting uh, isn't, you know, there's, there's certainty, you don't have a new certainty in doubt. Doubt doesn't somehow get to escape questions. And so it's more of this paradox of, well, faith has to deal with doubt, but doubt, right? Doubt is doubted itself. Am I doubting the right thing? Is my doubt correct? So it's not just the person who hopes in God that needs to answer questions, right? And we live in an age of question. Let's continue on. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. What's a cataract? Anybody? Yeah, we, we think of it cloudy, you know, eyes maybe comes with some age. Uh, the cataracts here, right, this is the, the water falling and crashing into the pool. Here's the thunder of your cataracts. Uh, all of your waves and your billows have gone over me. Okay? By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In the face of doubt and uncertainty, be heartened by God's thunderous love. I think there's a movie, something like that, coming out. Uh, love and Thunder, Thor. Uh, right? But be heartened by his steadfast love that billows over us. Right? And, and here's you know, why you may be going, why was he talking about faith, hope, and love? It's not, we don't see it in the passage. Yet we do. Right? Faith, hope, and love are running under and through this. And here we're challenged to rest in God's steadfast love. We, we often think of God's love as unconditional. I think sometimes when we do that, we're using a really vague term, unconditional. What, is, what do we mean by this? Usually what we mean is, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm off the hook, right? And so we're, oh, God's, God's grace meets all of my sin, so I just keep on going, right? God's love's not unconditional if that's what you mean by unconditional. God's love, his steadfast love, his unfailing love, it conditions us. It is shaping us. This, this is what the psalmist is pointing to, why he keeps saying, hope in God. Be conditioned in your faith, hope, and love by the God 
who raised Jesus from the dead, right? It conditions us. It's far more accurate. It's far more easy to defend in Scripture to talk about the way God's love conditions us and is equal to our sin to condition us than to use unconditional love as the idea that, well, God doesn't care what we do. He cares deeply what we do. Uh, and here the psalmist calls us continually to, you know, to be conditioned by the love of God. Go to verse 9. Okay? And, and, and here's where we again rest. I say to God, my rock. Right? Here's this constant theme. But it's a paradox. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Right? We've moved from where is God? Why have you forgotten? We, we see things building. Why must I walk about mournfully? Because the enemy oppresses me. As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? So, so here we have, where is your God? Right? But uncertainty, doubt, is now coupled with opposition. Godless opposition. Okay, and this may be direct. The psalmist, if the psalmist is in exile, if the psalmist is surrounded by those who don't love God, who don't praise the God who delivered Israel from Egypt, right, then he's facing taunting. Uh, you know, he's blocked from some of the things that he needs to do to be among the people and praising God. So it may be direct. And maybe you face direct opposition to your faith. Right? You may. Now, we live in a place where sometimes we misinterpret direct opposition. Maybe we're kind of sometimes just being a goof about things. Right? But, but we may be here and face direct opposition. But we certainly face indirect opposition. Right? A world that in, in some ways that we haven't recognized is, is hostile to loving God, to holding ourselves in God, to the hope that it is in God. The more pressing issue may be the things that are shaping us that we don't recognize. Uh, when I was talking about being lovers, and I've mentioned this book before, uh, You Are What You Love, James Smith, he talks about you know, coming together to worship. Why? Because in worship, as the people of God, we are in being ensoried in the gospel. We're finding our place in the gospel, in the story of the gospel. But we do many other things. We shop. Uh, we take part in activities. One of the big concerns that I've had as, as our children have grown has been our involvement in sports, right? Uh, two of my kids are away on, on basketball trips right now. But, but here's my concern. Sports is a full-body activity. Worship is meant to be a full-body activity. In basketball, or in soccer, uh, or in all the other sports we play, your body is, is learning, it's memorizing, it's, it's, you know, when we see somebody do some amazing move on the soccer pitch, or on the basketball court, or on the football field, it didn't come from nowhere. It comes from muscle memory, from their putting their body through these motions that when they need them now, well, their body knows what to do, almost as if second nature, right? Well, one of the problems is, is that sports also is training them in domination of others, right? And we have to be very careful about those things because as a Christian, I recognize, well, sin is this lust to dominate, but that's not the gospel. That's not Christ. That's not 
the Christ who Paul describes in Philippians 2 is subjecting himself, right, even to taking on human flesh, even to death on a cross. So somehow in this world where we all put our kids in sports, we know it's, it's good for them, we want them to learn things through the sports, it's character building, but it is also, it's a full body training in something that is counter to the gospel, in dominating others. And we have to be careful of that. I say that as somebody who's trying to guide his kids through it, because I love sports, right? But I have to be aware of those things. But it can be other things. It can be the way that we do business. It can be the way that we relate to our neighbors. These are full body experiences, right? And we're learning something to them, uh, through them. By doing these things, by shopping, by sports activities, by the work we do, we are training our bodies. And that is why we need the submission of the body of Christ, the submission to the lordship of Christ. That's why we need to gather, one of the reasons we need to gather, so that we can be formed and shaped in the story of the gospel, so that we can be shaped uh, through worship, that as we're worshiping, as we sing together, as we pray together, as in this activity here where I'm speaking some words and you're hearing some words, it's an activity we're doing together that is shaping and forming us. And we need to continue to be shaped and formed. So, verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. What do I do in the face of opposition? I hope in God. I condition myself in the hope of God. Because that's the answer in the face of opposition. In the face of uncertainty, hope in God. In the face of adversity, of opposition, of godlessness, hope in God. We are called to hope in God. Now in Psalm 43, and we're just going to read through Psalm 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For those who are deceitful and unjust, from those who are deceitful and unjust, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Do we see a progression here? Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? Why have you cast me off? We've moved from doubt to facing opposition to despair. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp. Oh, God, my God. Verse 2, why have you cast me off? What do we do with this despair? And it raises the question, has despair triumphed over faith, hope, and love? Has doubt triumphed? Has opposition or godlessness triumphed? Has despair triumphed? And we need to take seriously the challenge of, of living for God in the world that we live in. Because we're faced with doubt, we're faced with opposition, we can tend towards despair. Proverbs 13, 12 that I, I read at the start, hope deferred makes the heart grow weak. I feel like I'm at risk of a weak heart often. We need to know what it is to live in faith, hope, and love and to be built up in it. Colossians 2, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, 
just as you were taught, abounding and in thanksgiving. We gather here to be rooted and grounded, to be prepared for the moral field of love, to love one another, to learn love, right, at the lap of Christ, so that we can go from here and love our neighbors, so that we can go from here and love our enemies. Not with the love that I can conjure up, not with the cheap, often, you know, so corrupted idea of love that we have in our world, but with a love that is drawn through the Spirit in Christ. God's love is what we are, as the gathering of his people, to bring to the world outside. And so in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. O'Donovan continues, he writes this, God's kingdom is the condition of our acting. It underwrites the intelligibility of our purposes. Okay. What's he saying here, right? God's kingdom, it's, you know, when we pray, your will on earth as it is in heaven, God's kingdom is conditioning. We are to do kingdom living here on earth. Our action may be framed uh, consistently with it. It may acquire its immediate purpose from the eternal purpose that it foreshadows, indirectly but patiently. Let's let God's will be done on earth. Let's let it continue to form and shape us in faith, hope, and love in this world that we live in. We are going to face challenges. You may be facing the challenge of doubt or uncertainty today. You may very easily think of of godlessness, oppression that you face. You may be on the thin edge of despair. That may be your reality. The psalmist just continues to point us, hope in God. I, at the beginning of the, the message, I, I put Proverbs 13, 12, because I think Proverbs 13, 12, it gives us a, a real, uh, you know, kind of Coles notes, that's a really old version, Wikipedia uh, entry of, of what Psalm 42 and 43 are about, right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but that's not the whole proverb. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Trees are another thing. It's hard to escape in the Psalms. Uh, I'm going to read to you how Eugene Peterson uh, translates this in the message. Unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick, but a sudden good break can turn life around. Now, I, I'm, I, I like the way he, the first part, unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick. I think this heartsickness I can understand. A sudden good break can turn life around. I think we've lost something there, right? I think we need to recognize both the desire, the issue of we are lovers who need our loves shaped by God, and the tree of life that we have. Uh, I began with, with a, you know, a heavier illustration. I'll, I'll close with a lighter one. Uh, but it involves a tree, and it's light in some ways. It, it was painful to me. Um, but I, I used to take uh, high school students up into northern British Columbia, and we would do a couple of weeks of, of service there, of ministry. And the, uh, where we went, uh, we had a break one day. There was a missionary that lived up there, and we had a break one day, and we went to their property uh, to be able to go and, and just have a barbecue and things. And he had a tree swing off in the bush. So he had to run for, you know, five or six minutes to... 
run for five or six minutes. Uh, I'm exaggerating that. But it, it was off kind of the edge of his property and at the edge of a gully. And some of the kids in my youth group had been there, and they came back and said, John, you got to come and try this, this tree swing. Uh, and yeah, we're, if you guys want to come up, we're going to finish with a firm foundation. And so I went uh, with a couple of the guys, and they showed me, they swung, and, and the, the tree was a big tree, firmly planted, and you swung around it and landed on the other side. And I saw them do it, and being around uh, 23 or 24, I was like, well, whatever these guys do, I've got to be able to do this way better than what they can do. Uh, an issue that kind of got me in trouble at different points in my life, and, and didn't fail to get me in trouble here. So I, I grabbed onto the rope, and I swung, uh, but instead of doing you know, a U, I, I chose to do a V, a very narrow V. Uh, I swung out as hard as I could, I got over the gully, and as the rope twisted, I saw where I was coming back to, which was the tree the rope was attached to. And I hit the tree. I've never in my life hit anything firmer. And I felt like a cartoon character sliding down to the base of the tree. And then the next thing I remember is the face of one of the kids from my youth group standing over me as I opened my eyes and the buzzing kind of dissipated. And he's like, you blacked out. <laughs> and being the caring kid he was, he just kept yelling that and ran back to the group. John blacked out, John blacked out. And I laid there trying to you know, piece myself together. But here's the image we get with these trees, you know, a, a tree of life. And you might say, well, that didn't seem like a tree of life to you, right? But it is in two ways, because one, it's the firm grounding of that tree that offered freedom, right? that gave us a chance to be able to swing, to, to be able to experience freedom. And that is what, right, that is what hope in God is doing for us. The other reality is when I choose my own freedom, I am going to crash against what God has planted, what God has established. I don't get to define faith, love, and hope for myself. I hope in God. And when I don't, I will face the reality of, of what it means to try to do things my own way. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask you to ground us in uh, the message that you have for us in Psalm 42 and 43. And Lord, I ask you to guide us and teach us. We want to be, as David uh, spoke last week out of Psalm 1, tree, uh, trees planted by streams of water. And our hope in you, that is a part of this firm planting. But Lord, we, we must submit to you. We must continue to hope in you. Not in something we can make of you, but Lord, submitting to you. Letting you shape us in faith, hope, and love. And Lord, as we close, we ask you to seal on our hearts those things you want to do in us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com 
forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.